the passage of Scripture that will be our focus today is Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. 29 through 34, five verses, and I'll read them. Hear the word of the Lord. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give illumination and understanding of the Scriptures. Lord, teach us how it is that we should come to you. Teach us the attitude that we should have and the manner of life that we should have and the way of thinking that we should adopt any time and every time we come into your presence. Lord, we want to be in your presence. And so teach us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Well, after our detour on the doctrine of the atonement, which we you'll remember we took as our sort of springboard, verse 28 of this chapter, where Jesus says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. After that, I think it's uh, we would all do well for a brief recap of what we've been reading in Matthew's Gospel primarily in verse, or chapters 19 and 20, it appears that all the way back at the beginning of verse 19 or maybe even specifically beginning at verse 3 of chapter 19, we've been looking and Matthew's tried to show us our Lord's various interactions with different kinds of people. Uh, different kinds of people that is from different walks of life. Some of them have approached Christ, and these types of people held what we might consider a higher rank in society. And they would generally be expected to be treated with more honor, like the Pharisees who had come. They were teachers of the law. They were leaders, religious leaders in Israel. The rich young ruler came, and you'll remember he was a, more than likely a very young, wealthy political leader. He also held a high status in the society. In chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, James and John had come, who maybe not in society held high uh, status, but they were a part of that inner circle of Christ's disciples. You'll remember he had the twelve, but then he had the three, Peter, James, and John, who were a part of his inner circle. We might consider him two of, or them two of Christ's closest friends. And so they've come. 
And then others have come to him who were not given as much respect by the people. That we've looked at primarily in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 19 with those who brought little children to Jesus. They wanted him to lay his hands on them and pray for them. And you'll remember that in all of these interactions thus far, Christ himself has responded in ways that would have been contrary to the thinking of natural man. Remember, the, the ethic of Christ's kingdom is the, the reverse of what we would typically, um, or the way we would typically act as natural men. Where we would give clout to religious leaders, and in our, in our day, the, the culture of celebrity is, is, is I, I believe, out of control. But where we would give clout to religious leaders and, and famous preachers and teachers, Christ called these Pharisees out. Actually, probably in a roundabout way, implied that many of them were living in adultery or had committed adultery. Where we typically would fawn over political leaders to such a point where sometimes it's, it's good PR for a political leader to, to go to a church in the area, for everybody to get to see him. And we just think that's, that's an amazing thing, that a, that a politician was there. And, and we, we like to throw his name out. We fawn over political leaders. When the rich young ruler came, Christ challenged him and rebuked him for his idolatry. We give priority to our closest friends. Christ's closest friends came and he commanded them to go serve their peers, serve the other disciples. And you'll remember that the principle, I believe, that's being taught in all of this is found first in chapter 19, verse 30. Many who are first will be last and the last first. And then again in chapter 20, verse 16, so the last will be first and the first last. Again, he's saying the kingdom of heaven and the ethic of God's kingdom does not treat men the way men treat men. We look on outward appearances. We like to, to exalt men and parade men and, and fluff men up. God doesn't do that. God is not impressed by our, our, our thinking or our status or our money or, or our, our power. None of that. That's what's happening. So then we come now to the fifth and final interaction in verses 29 through 34. And I believe from this brief account we can sort of see a summary of the, the primary teaching in all of these scenes. In other words, what we're going to do is read it, but we'll then sort of bring everything we've learned back into and, and pile it on top of each other to pull out some application from this, this section. Matthew is here showing us the kind of coming that Christ honors and the kind of requests that he answers. And so what I want to do is open up the exposition under four headings and then we'll move to those points of application. So the first heading is the initial appeal. The initial appeal in verses 29 through 30. And I'll read it again. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting beside the roadside or by the roadside... And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, we can see there from the first verse what Matthew is doing is sort of keeping us on a map 
as Jesus makes his way from the region of Galilee. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 19. He went away from Galilee. He's entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And now he's getting increasingly closer to the city of Jerusalem. And you'll remember that Jesus has already told his disciples three times he is going to Jerusalem for the purpose of being beaten, mocked, suffering at the hands of religious leaders, then handed over into the hands of Gentiles who would then kill him, but then after three days he would arise. He's told them this. And so when we read, they drew near to Jerusalem, or that's chapter 21, chapter um, 20, they went out of Jericho. What we're seeing is they're getting really close to Jerusalem, even closer, where all of these events would take place. And a great crowd is still following him. And more than likely, this crowd assumes they will be a part of this initial grand entrance of the newly crowned Messiah into, the, into his city. They want to be a part of this, this big show. Now, of course, there are probably some who are simply traveling for the Passover and the upcoming Feast of Unleavened Bread. But there's a large crowd making their way toward Jerusalem. He's obviously on a stretch of, of, of road that would have been very busy this time of year because we read that there are two blind men sitting by the roadside and they have heard that Jesus is about to pass by. Now, how do we know this is a busy stretch of highway? Well, panhandlers and beggars, they don't sit out in the country. You know, they, they set up shop right in a very busy place. And so these two blind men are here. Now Matthew tells us of two of them. Mark and Luke mention one of them. And Mark actually gives us the name of one of them, Bartimaeus. And that's usually the, 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 the scene or the, the picture that comes into our mind the quickest when we hear blind Bartimaeus, just sort of a catchy title. Blind Bartimaeus is one of these blind men and he must have stood out in the narrative, perhaps went on to grow in popularity in the early church. But there are actually two blind men here. And they have heard that Jesus is passing by. Again, this gives us a hint into what sort of culminates in chapter 21 as Jesus comes to the height of his popularity. People had either ran ahead of this crowd or an earlier group had passed by. These blind men had asked, what's, what's all the commotion? The response was, Jesus of Nazareth is about to pass by. And so they have heard he's about to pass by. And so in hearing, they begin to cry out. Now I want to focus here for a second. This word cry out. It means to utter in a loud voice. It is to shout out or to, to, to yell in a, with a very harsh tone or, or like you're in trouble. The, the definition that was given says often indicating a harsh sounding utterance. So let's... I want to read you a couple of the references using this word. First, the first two from the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And listen to the mood of this language. In Psalm 142, verse 6, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. You, you can get the feeling of what's happening there in that word, cry. Another one in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save. And of course we can't mistake the mood 
at the cross. And this same word was used in Matthew 27, 50, where Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That, that was, we can maybe picture the mood of the cross better than those other ones. The point I'm trying to make is that this, is, this wasn't just a, a continual drawing on of, of beggars like we typically imagine where, where they, they, they constantly in a, in a monotone voice cry out or, or speak sort of a, I'm saying this but I don't know if anyone's listening. I'm just saying it just so if anyone hears, if anyone's around they'll hear me speaking. We, we often picture alms for the poor Alms for the poor, just a constant droning, droning, monotone. That's not what's happening here. These men are shouting. They're yelling. They're crying out as if they were in pain or in desperate need. Now, what were they crying? Well, look at this phrase. I'm going to break this up in two different parts here and in the next, in the next mention of it. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, in our culture, it's very popular for people to say, Lord, have mercy. And, and, I, and they're taking the name of the Lord in vain most often when they do that as a, just a sort of a, an expletive. That's not what these men are doing. They are legitimately crying out for mercy. And the, the, the blind beggars are addressing Jesus as the son of David. That is a messianic title that carries with it just as much baggage, if not more, than when Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. There's a lot behind that title. Its origin is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Hopefully, again, you'll remember that. That's 2 Samuel 7. That alliteration helps me... Uh, Remember 2 Samuel 7. That's the chapter of the Davidic covenant where God made His covenant with King David. I'm going to read you two sections from that chapter. In verse 12, God, speaking to David, says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish His kingdom. Now, we could very easily see that fulfilled in Solomon and all of the, the physical bloodline of David. But then in verse 16, he also says this, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so God himself has promised a son from David's lineage, from the loins of King David who would reign forever. And you see that as you continue to read throughout the, the, the Old Testament. As there's constant rebellion and constant um, turning from God and idolatry, that nation of Israel is, is rebuked and torn down and destroyed. And, and even in the nation of Judah, there was, there was rebellion and idolatry just as bad as in Israel. But God keeps coming back and, he's, and, it's, and we, we learn He doesn't completely turn away because of the promise He made to David. In all of their rebellion, God remembers... I would wipe them off the planet, but I made a promise to David, and so I will keep it. And so he continues to put a son from David's line on the throne. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, we see this, this concept brought forth in prophecy. We read, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. You see the imagery there. The, 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 perhaps the nation is viewed as a tree or maybe a, a vine. 
And then because of their idolatry and their rebellion, God comes along and He hacks it off. And so you just see this, this dead stump in the yard. It's dead. You think that's a dead stump. But then out of nowhere, God says there will come a shoot, a little green shoot out of that stump that will, that will bear fruit. The tree's not completely dead yet. From the stump of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David. In Matthew chapter 1, in verse 1, Matthew started off this gospel with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In other words, this is what Matthew's been trying to get across the whole time. This man is the son of David, the, the one we've all been waiting for. This is him. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 and 42, it says, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, What do you think about the Christ, that is the Anointed One, the Messiah? Whose son is He? They said to Him, the son of David. Even the Pharisees knew the Messiah would be a son of David. In John chapter 7 and verse 42, the common people are talking. And they say, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. In other words, it wasn't just the religious leaders who knew. Everybody knew the Messiah will be the son of David. He will come from the loins of David. He would be the king who would mount David's throne and reign forever. So I hope you can see the point I'm trying to make. These, these blind beggars, as they are bellowing out their pleas and their cry for mercy, they're not trying to cover up or hide uh, in any way what they believe about this man, Jesus. They are shouting out exactly what they believe about Him, namely that He is their King. They heard Jesus of Nazareth is coming. They equated that with Messiah. They knew it. They believed it. They'd never seen Him, but they knew it from what they had heard. The second thing, or the second heading in verse 31, we see rebuke and importunity. Rebuke and importunity. The crowd, verse 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. The crowd rebuked them. Hopefully you can hear in this an echo of what had happened in chapter 19 and verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he may lay his hand on them, hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. Here, again, those who would come, come to Christ are being rebuked by those who are already with him. With the children and with here, it's almost as if they're saying, don't bother him. He's far too busy for the likes of you. Don't you know he's got a kingdom to establish? He's got work to be done. And so they rebuked him and said, Be quiet. So these throngs who were with Jesus considered these blind beggars to be more of a hindrance than anything else. But they cried out all the more, Have mercy on us. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. These men are motivated by these rebukes. They cry all the more. They don't lessen their shouting. They don't calm down. They don't take it down a notch. They don't restrain themselves. They do the opposite. They get louder. They get more intense. They become more offensive to this crowd. 
And now here's the other part of their, their, their cry, have mercy on us. In other words, they're asking him, if we, if we take the, the definition of this word, to ask for mercy is to acknowledge weakness, to acknowledge inability in self, and to admit ability and superiority in the one you're, you're crying out to. And so they're, they're crying out, look down upon us with compassion in your heart and then act upon us in our low estate. We are weak, we are helpless, we are in need, you are strong, you are able to meet our need if you would see fit to stoop so low as to help the likes of us. Mercy, they're seeking mercy all the more. Third heading, in verses 32 and 33, we finally get to the verbal exchange between Christ and these men. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. The Lord stops having heard these men, and he engages them. He asks for specifics. They mention generals. He asks for specifics. And so they respond with their specific answer. Their general plea for mercy is now a specific plea for sight. Not positions, not riches, not prominence, not pomp, not to sit on your right hand or on your left, not any of these things, sight. They just want to see. In the fourth heading, verse 34, we see Christ's merciful response. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. The word pity there is the word used... That means a deep movement in one's inner self. We would say gut-wrenching, deep down. And so Jesus' actions flowed out of this deeply felt sense of compassion. And this is the emotion, interestingly, that is most often attributed to our Lord. Some would refer to it as divine mercy, internal feeling of pity that leads to external act of benevolence over and over. And he had compassion. And he had compassion. And he was moved. But think about the, the, the widow who had lost her only son coming out of the city and he was moved with compassion. The people who were without food because they had followed him. He was moved with compassion. Those who were like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion. And so he touches their eyes. And immediately they recovered. These two blind men are immediately made able to see. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 11 we read, Who makes man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And so we see here at least an act of the power of God and I would say at most an act of God Himself as He touched these men. Gives them sight. And they followed him. So they weren't in this for just a quick fix, get their sight and then go about their ways. They, they continued in that profession that they had made, namely that he was the Messiah. If he is in fact the son of David, then what 
better um, endeavor to embark upon at this point than to go wherever he's going. One of the other gospel writers tells us that before uh, he had, one of them had gotten up, he threw off his cloak. And you, you almost get the picture that it just an abandoning of, of the life before and, and moving forward and following Christ. So, when we compare this scene with those preceding it, we get a, a fuller picture of our Lord, I think, here. A, a better picture of His compassion, His mercy as He dealt with people. And we, we get to see the reception that He would give to those who came to Him with godly motives and with godly intentions. Again, many had come to Christ only to walk away. That's a fearful thing. The Pharisees came to Him, but they didn't want Him, and so they walked away. The rich young ruler came to Him. He wanted eternal life, only to walk away. Others had come to Him receiving or, or seeking to receive something specific like James and John. They wanted those right-hand and left-hand spots in the kingdom, and they were denied. They did not get what they requested. And then others came to Christ and they received exactly what they asked for. Those who brought these children, He laid His hands on them. Exactly what they asked for. These two blind men, let our eyes be opened. They recovered their sight. Exactly what they asked for. So the question is, what's the difference that's what I want to try to get into. What sets a person in the good pleasure of Christ so that their request triggers a heartfelt response and precise action on his part? That's what we got to know. Everybody can come to him. Everybody wants to come to him. But how do, how do we come to him to receive the positive reaction instead of the negative? Now, just by way of clarification, of course... We do not come physically up to the physical person of Jesus and look at Him face to face like these people did. But in the events of these verses, we are taught something important, I think, about the, the, our spiritual coming and our spiritual communion with God in Christ. In other words, we don't come physically, but we do come. We better be coming. We don't see Him face to face, but we do commune with Him. And I would suggest probably primarily in prayer. And, and that might seem strange when you read some of the old writers. They, they have no qualms with coming to passages like this where a person talks to God, even though it's face to face, and they use it to teach about prayer. What is it when a person talks to God? It's prayer. What are these blind men doing but praying to the Lord? And so... We, we learn a lesson about how it is that we must come to Him. We know no man comes to the Father except through Christ, the Son. If we would come to God for communion and particularly in prayer, bringing our request to Him, Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. Christ, we saw last week, is the, our ever-living intercessor before the Father, like that, that uh, perfumed incense that, that billowed in the Holy of Holies, making it possible for us to come into the presence of God. If our requests would be offered and answered by God, we have to pray according to the will of Christ, in the name of Christ, 
in faith with no doubting that Christ has given us the request. You see what I'm doing? Christ, 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 Christ. The very ground of our communion with the three-in-one God rests upon our dealings with Christ. That's why we have to be careful with people. But maybe this will help as you're dealing with people. Some people just want to talk God, 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 God. Like, well, I love God, and I'm, I'm you know... God, God gives me things, and, and that may be fine. Other people, everything's Jesus. Well, just like Jesus. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my friend. If we would come to God the Father, we must come through Jesus, who is the Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we have to nitpick everybody's conversation and way of speaking, but, but that, that might help you as you're dealing with someone. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses love God. Uh, Mormons love God, and they'll even say Jesus. They'll even say Christ. We have to... Pay attention to how people speak. If we would, if we would deal with the Trinity, the three-in-one God, it, it, all of that rests upon our dealings with Christ. If we are to have fellowship with God, there must be intimacy and fellowship with Christ, His person and His work. Again, this would contrast the error of Rome, who says if you want to come to God, you've got to come through Christ, but if you want to come through Christ, you've got to come through His mother. And if you want to come to His mother, well, then you've got to have all these other saints as well and pray to them and pray to Mary so that you can get to Christ, so that Christ will... That's not what the Bible teaches. We can have intimate fellowship and experience with Christ Himself, and that's what all of this depends on. So again, what sets a person... Believer or unbeliever, in the good pleasure of Christ, so that their request triggers this heartfelt response and precise action on his part. If you're unconverted, you would come to him for salvation. But how, how do you come? If you are a believer, you come to him in prayer, but how do you come? We might ask it this way. If I would come to Christ knowing, without a doubt, that He will stop in His tracks, turn His attention in my direction, hear my request, and grant it to me exactly how I ask it, how must I come? Now, of course, we could go from here into another several long week series on prayer. Because I'm sure we all have had those experiences where we feel like we're praying, and it's just coming back down and hitting us on the top of the head. It's going nowhere. And we wonder why in the world are my prayers not being answered. So I want to open up two points of application. I'm not going to do a series on prayer at this point. First, the kind of coming Christ honors and the kind of request Christ answers. First, the kind of coming Christ honors. We have to be clear that there is a kind of coming that Christ honors. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In John 6, 37, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come, come. If you come, I won't cast out. And yet throughout John's gospel especially, we see this major emphasis on those who are coming, those who are following, those who are believing, and yet he still admonished them, to become true disciples. They had come, and it wasn't the right coming. Specific here in Matthew. He's shown us several different ways that people have come to Christ 
the Pharisees, the children, the rich young ruler, James and John and these blind men, all of these different ways that people have come and yet many of them did not receive what they came for. If we wanted to tie this into last week, we could be reminded again that you don't just come to Christ at any old time in any old way. There is a way that we must come. But first, let's look at some of the ways that Christ does not honor. Perhaps this is what you're doing. If, you, this is, if this describes your method of approach to Christ, this is why you're not having intimate fellowship. This is why your prayers aren't being answered. You're not receiving this warm, welcoming reaction first, coming for temporal self-service. If you're coming to Jesus like the crowds in John chapter 6, just to get free food, just to get something temporal, temporal blessings, He's not going to honor that. He, he knew that of them. He knew what was in man. And so when they came, He says, You're coming because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so they sort of entertained his, his conversation for a little bit. And then later they said, Well, why don't you just show us another sign? What they meant was, Give us more free food like you did yesterday. They just wanted free stuff. Temporal self-service. And how does He respond to all that? He points them to Himself, the, the bread of life. And begins to preach these hard doctrines concerning their inability to come. He closes by teaching them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And by the end of that chapter, they're all gone except for the twelve. We see this, this type of thinking in the prosperity gospel that says, Come to Jesus and he'll make you healthy and wealthy and prosperous and everything will go well for you. Now, we, I think we openly would rebuke that, but at the same time, we do this ourselves when our, our hard following after Christ is only when we need something from Him. Like, my devotional time is spotty at best until somebody in my family is deathly sick. And then I'm reading my Bible and praying every day. Or, or our prayer life is, is, is dodgy except for when we get in a financial place where we know the next paycheck and maybe the one after that are not going to get me out of this hole. I need something to happen. And then all of a sudden, man, we'll read our Bible every day and pray every day. We could throw in here all of the other felt needs that we might have. It's the same as the prosperity gospel if that's how you're coming. We come not for Christ, but for ourselves when we need something. Now, does that mean we don't come to God when we need something? No, it means we should have been coming to Him the whole time. So he, He's not going to honor that way of coming. Secondly, uh, I've called this one coming for doctrinal testing. That is testing God, not for Him to test us, but testing Him. Like the Pharisees, they came to Christ, yes, but they came to test Him, to argue about His doctrine, His, His teaching. Now what kind of attitude would come to Christ to argue with Him except an attitude of superiority? These men, the Pharisees, had their traditions. They knew the Scriptures. They were settled in their teachings. Their goal was to come to Christ to make a mockery of Him. They came to stand as judges over the truth. They came like many of the modern debates that we watch today. And, and nothing wrong with watching a good debate, but those guys aren't coming to be, have their minds changed. They're not going to leave thinking any differently. They've already got written out everything they're going to say. They're going to stand. They're going to give their presentation, and then they're done. That's what's happening. 
And that's sort of how these Pharisees had come. They came to Jesus not to learn, but to, to judge and test Him. We do the same thing when we hold our own presuppositions about the truth concerning God or biblical doctrines, the gospel, and then we study the Scriptures for the purpose of proving what we already believe to be true, validating our own beliefs. It's as if we come to God testing God, daring Him to disagree with what we've already determined to be true based on our tradition or our cultural biases. And if you stay there long enough, if you hang around Him long enough like the Pharisees, He's just going to make you look like a fool. He's not going to honor that way of coming. He won't honor a coming for moral endorsement like the rich young ruler that is re receiving or coming to receive validation for moral righteousness. This is like when we come to Christ in the Scriptures or we come to Him in prayer or we come to Him in worship time and we are, it's like we're oblivious to the fact that we are the ones that need what we're doing. We don't think that we are the chief of sinners. And so everything I read, well, that would be so good for so-and-so. I'm constantly praying for so-and-so. I heard a sermon. Man I, man, I just wish so-and-so could hear that. And we don't realize I'm the one that needs it. I need that. And so we come to, again, devotional time, prayer, a sermon, and all we're thinking is what somebody else might get out of it as if God don't know what they need. We assume, like the rich young ruler, well, I've already kept the law from my youth. I'm good. I've got everything I need. But, man, it sure would be good if someone else could get some of this. The, the, the encouragement would be, listen for yourself. Come to these things and, and, and ask God, do something in me. Christ is not going to honor that way of coming if you're coming just as a mediator between Him and somebody else. A, a fourth way that Christ will not honor, coming for peer accolades. Like James and John, they came to Christ, but they just wanted positions. They wanted to secure those top two spots. Again, how often do we begin to dig into the Scriptures and dig into good Christian books and dig into our prayer life just so that our fellow men will know us as people who read books and study the Bible and pray a lot. In other words, we want to be men and women of the Word so that people will say He's a man of the Word. Or we want to be men and women of prayer so that people will call us a person of prayer. We like it when somebody calls us and says, I called you because, well, I just know that you're a prayer warrior. And that just makes us, we just like it. We don't crave the knowledge of God and His Word. We don't crave experimental communion with Christ. We just want other people to know that we do all that stuff. Christ is not going to honor that way of coming if we're just doing it because of what people think of us. So, what are the ways that ways of coming that Christ honors. If we would come to the Father, we must come through the Son. And if we would come through the Son, we have to come in a way He honors. So again, compiling all of these, these pericopes together, first, come in childlike humility. We read this in Matthew 18, 4. Whoever humbles himself like this child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then in chapter 19, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. We must come with childlike humility. That is simple faith. Come bringing nothing. Gladly receiving any blessing, even if it is just a touch on the head. 
joyfully accepting in any, any and all exhortation, admonition, correction. You remember the, how children are? I've, I've used this analogy, how they'll come to you just to hold something. Here, hold my cup. Set your cup on the table. I don't have to hold your... But they don't care. Whereas we adults become so prideful, we think we can do it all on our own. We think we've got the power. We must come in, in childlike humility. Christ will honor your humility. Secondly, come with importunate resolve. Again, when th these men were rebuked, they cried out all the more. They weren't stopping. They weren't afraid. They weren't hindered. I think we see the same picture in Matthew eleven twelve 12 when he says, The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. See, those who would come to Christ will very often be tested as to their resolve in coming. We see this in the Scripture. Sometimes people will come to Christ and you wonder if he, even, if he needs to take a class on evangelism. He's doing it backwards. It's like he's turning them away. But he can't turn them away if they're really coming with this resolve. Those who stood firm and who pressed even harder were the ones who received his blessing. As you seek Christ, the world and your flesh and even the devil, all of these things work together to give you distraction after distraction. And that will bring about spiritual fatigue. But God will use that very same fatigue to test you. Just like in the time of the judges, He will leave some of the Canaanites in the land to see whether or not you will keep fighting them or whether you'll give up and say, well, they got metal chariots and we got wood chariots. He wants to test your resolve. And so when you, if you can't focus in the Scriptures, that doesn't mean stop reading. That means read more. The problem is you've done more of not reading than you are of reading. And so now when you do read... You don't know how to do it. When you can't persist in prayer, that doesn't mean stop. That means pray more. When gathering with the saints is difficult and loving them is difficult, which I know none of us can, can sympathize or empathize, empathize there, but that doesn't mean stop being around the saints. It doesn't mean stay home. That means get with them more. Weeds will grow up and choke out piety if, they're, if, if you aren't diligent Persevere, importunate resolve, and Christ will honor that resolve. If you chase after him, he will be there. A third way of coming, come as one seeking mercy. Again, these blind men, they sought mercy. Mercy assumes lowliness on your part and ability on the part of Christ. If you're coming and attempting to commune with Christ, seeking his blessing, but you've not yet realized what you need is mercy then there's a greater need for humility. You don't need a nudge. You're not coming to Him for a promotion or a reward, a badge of honor. You're, you need mercy. I've got nothing to bring. I'm weak, I'm helpless, I'm needy. Do you realize that you need mercy? Not just helps with your gifts, a little bit more power, a little bit more emotion. First and foremost, you need the King of Kings to condescend to your lowest state in order to meet your pathetic needs. We have to start there. You must come like a beggar. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how we come first. Needy, poor, broken, seeking mercy. Fourth way of coming that Christ honors is, is we must come believing. 
Remember, these blind beggars had already determined before Christ actually got to them who he was. Jesus of Nazareth equals Son of David, Messiah. They knew it. They knew without a doubt he was the Messiah. He would sit on David's throne. And Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You, we must believe in the essential characteristics of God's revealed nature and being. In other words, if we would come to God through Christ, and by that way, coming to Christ, we have to be sure that we're coming to the right God through the right Christ and not just some self-created deity of our imaginations. So we must come believing. And if we will come to God, this is, again, unbeliever seeking salvation, or Christian seeking communion with their Father, if we would come to God through Christ with childlike faith, importunate resolve, seeking mercy from Him, with full confidence and faith in His person and in His work, Christ will honor that coming and we'll experience true communion with God. Second point of application, the kind of request Christ answers. Again, we're trying to apply this specifically to prayer and, and coming to God with our requests. First again, the kind of request Christ does not answer. He will not answer your request if you're praying just to test Him. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Christ told Satan. We don't come in prayer, and hopefully this is basic, but there may be some, some of the younger ones who, we, we see this kind of thing on movies and TV. We see people praying ridiculous things like this. If you'll do this, I'll do this. God, if you'll just spare my life, I'll do whatever you tell me to do. That's not biblical prayer. Well, God, if you're really powerful, you'll do this or that. If you're really loving, then you'll fix this situation or that situation. You see, that kind of prayer makes the one offering the prayer the arbiter of the providence of God. As if I know what's good and I know what's right, I just need to get God on board with what, what I have going on. I've already determined what's best, and I need you, God, to get on board to prove that you're on my side, to prove you're worth my following. In other words, you're testing God. He's not going to honor that. Requests that are meant to overlook idolatry. Again, the, the rich young ruler came and he wanted eternal life. But he wanted to hold on to his idolatry of material wealth. That was the idol that was demanded by Christ. You've got to give up your idols. This, I believe, is one of the most dangerously common types of prayer. We come to Christ with great fervency and great emotion and we beg and we plead for God and His action in, in our lives or, or especially in the lives of others, things that we deem to be of utmost importance and yet we do that, it seems, just to put out of our mind the fact that we have obvious known idolatry that we're holding on to. It's like we think the spirituality of praying with great zeal for someone else, somehow cancels out the sins that we're holding on to. And again, if we would pray like sons and daughters and be treated like sons and daughters, then we must act like sons and daughters. And sons and daughters desire to please their father. And so if you're holding on to sin or idols 
Ultimately, you're coming to Christ in prayer is just a mockery of His Lordship. You can't come to Him asking for all of these things while you're stomaching idolatry in, in your own life. And the last one that Christ will not answer, honor is, or answer is requests that exalt men. James and John were just trying to exalt themselves. And again, we do this in our public prayers. I've got to make sure my prayers are just right so that people hear me pray. Or even when we get together, perhaps we're not praying, but we're just speaking a lot of our private prayers. And there is a place, a time and a place, I think, for good testimony, especially historical biography of the private prayers of, of men of the past. Very often in our requests, what we're praying for is an exaltation of man rather than God. If we come to Christ as self-elected arbiters of truth, with our own personal besetting sins and idols, seeking in our prayer some way to make man look good, Christ is not going to have anything to do with those prayers. That's why they're not being answered. They're, they're silly prayers. They're unbiblical, ungodly prayers. And in all of that, what's happening is we're tending to make ourselves the focus of our requests. Christ will not honor requests that make much of man and do not put himself, God, at the center. So lastly, then, the kind of request Christ answers. First, requests that exalt Christ. These beggars re referred to Christ as the son of David. If we would come to Christ, that must be our first aim, especially in our coming and in our prayers. Christ must be exalted. Whatever happens, whatever takes place, I want Christ to be exalted above all things. In 1 John 5, 14, he says, And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. You see, we don't come as arbiters of truth. We don't come having determined how God should or shouldn't act. We come according to His will. And when we pray that way, we show God your will is of supreme, supreme importance to me. I want your will to go forth in all things. I will set aside all of my personal and natural desires for your will. Jesus prayed in John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Christ Himself prayed that He would be glorified so that God would be glorified. And so when we pray, we should pray with the same pattern, that Christ would be exalted so that God would be glorified. That's where we start if we would have our requests answered. If you're praying something that is going to exalt Christ and give the most glory to God, that'll always be answered because that's what God's doing is glorifying Himself. Secondly, requests that renounce idolatry. Christ was urging the rich young ruler to let go of his idols. He had been an upstanding, moral man, or he wouldn't have been able to claim that he had kept the law from his youth, but he was still holding on to idols. In our approaches to Christ, we have to treasure Christ himself above everything else. He must be supreme. For his glory, the exaltation of Christ, treasuring of Christ. Thirdly, requests that deny self. Turn with me very quickly to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, I think, I'm not certain, 
it seems like what Luke is doing in chapter 18 is the same thing that Matthew was doing in chapters 19 and 20 of his gospel. Namely, he's trying to teach us this full orb lesson on approaching and, and praying to God. And one particular um, point that he makes is that of self-denial. In Luke chapter 18 and verse 30, we're, we're reading of the... Yeah, the, uh, the rich ruler. Is that right? No, verse 13, sorry. Luke 18, 13. Luke 18, 13. The Pharisee and the tax collector, they've both come to pray. But the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you read the whole thing, the Pharisee comes and he's making all of these self-claims. The tax collector, however, comes and he makes no claims of self-achievement. He won't even come near the temple. He doesn't even dare look up in the direction of God. But rather he beats his breast and he cries out for mercy. He's recognized himself as a sinner in need of mercy. And if we would gain the ear of Christ and have our requests answered, we have to come denying ourselves. Prayers offered in self-service are not worth the oxygen used to vocalize them. They don't go anywhere. God, Christ is not working to exalt men, but, exalt, but to exalt Himself. So if you completely deny yourself, renounce all self-advancement, self-service, then your prayers will have to be shaped by something. They'll be shaped by God Himself. And when God gives you the words to your prayers... He will see fit to answer your prayers. But He's not going to do that if you've already got in your mind how, how you're going to pray and that you're going to exalt yourself. And then lastly, the, the type of request Christ answers is requests prayed with persistence. Verses 3 through 7 of Luke chapter 18. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to Him. This is the judge kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Our Father seeks those who will persist in their requests. And these types of people, difficulty is just motivation to pray all the more. So, let's put all that together. If you've denied yourself, you're seeking to exalt Christ, your prayers will be shaped by God according to His will. And if that is the case... There's no reason to abandon the prayer after a short time thinking, well, God gave me the words to the prayer and I sought to exalt Him, but He's not doing it and so I guess I'll stop. No, persist in the prayer. If God has given it to you, then persist and Christ will honor that. Again, that's not some spooky like God speaking in my ear telling me what to pray type thing. We can find His will in His Word. Christ will honor this type of coming and He will answer these types of requests. And that church should blow our minds 
to think that this Christ would answer my request, that he would, that he would stop and turn and look at two blind beggars is one thing, that he would listen to my requests should amaze us because Christ is the root of the stump of Jesse, the everlasting king on David's throne. Listen to this from Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Do you know that King? King of glory. Strong and mighty. Mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. Not only does He own the armies of heaven by right of creation... He Himself is their personal commander. He receives from every angelic soldier a salute and a gaze of undivided respect and loyalty and submission. He leads them into battle and is Himself engaged in the battle as the conqueror of death and hell... At the signal of His command, all the legions of hell and Satan himself cower in fear like a beaten and mistreated dog, and yet, being joined with perfect and full humanity, He will look upon you and upon me like this, these blind beggars, and with gut-wrenching pity, He will stop, and He will be moved by our humble petitions, and He will act for us, and in us. Now, does that not make you want to learn how to come to Him and how to make your request known to Him and how to be with Him? I hope it does. One way that we come to Him and communion with Him, obviously, is the Lord's table. And it's at the Lord's table that we proclaim the full sufficiency of Christ for every need. We hear by faith eat his body and drink his blood. We're, we're showing, saying spiritually he is sustenance for me. In his death, Christ became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so here we come again, feasting on his spiritual body, feasting on his spiritual blood, feasting upon Christ alone through faith alone. And so when, when Paul admonishes us to examine ourselves, what he's saying is, Take the time to consider, have you thought about that? When you come to the Lord's table, do, are you, do you realize what you're doing through faith? You are feasting upon Christ. And so we'll take a moment and we will uh, examine ourselves. Take a moment in your seat, consider that reality, and then we'll come to the table.